Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Can Europe's next generation recovery fund rejuvenate the old continent? You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Patrick Lay, a digital editor at The Economist. Also on today's show, does green investing do any good? Protecting an investment portfolio from the carnage of climate change is not the same thing as preventing the carnage of climate change. And is the business model behind food delivery starting to go off? Everybody is completely aware that it's too little money. So you still continue, even though you're thinking, this is not enough, this is ridiculous. First, the European Union is attempting to get its whopping pandemic recovery package passed. The 750 billion euro fund, named Next Generation EU, is less a stimulus than an ambitious investment plan to transform Europe's economies, as the European Commission's president, Ursula von der Leyen, explained. Next Generation EU will invest in repairing our social fabric, protect our single market, help rebalancing balance sheets across Europe. Yet although it was announced 10 months ago, in May 2020, it is still to disperse a single cent. On Friday, March the 26th, Germany's highest court blocked the deal's progress, pending an appeal by a group of Eurosceptics. And this decision is the first of many hurdles the EU has yet to clear. They've definitely thrown sand in the gears. Basically, any attempt at sort of economic or fiscal integration inside the EU always encounters legal challenge in Germany. Tom Nuttall is The Economist's Berlin bureau chief. There's a group of conservative law professors, economists, who always take a case to the constitutional court. What's happened is that on Thursday, the German parliament agreed to ratify a decision that would allow the European Commission to begin borrowing later this year. Every national parliament has to do that in order for this thing to get off the ground. About half of them have done so, so far. Normally, the German president would sign the law and that would be that. But before that could happen, the court issued a temporary stay, basically instructing the president to refrain from approving the law until they, the court, had had a chance to properly examine the call from these plaintiffs for a temporary injunction. The problem is that the court offered no more details on that, and they didn't tell us how long it would take them to make that decision. The people in the finance ministry I've spoken to are not particularly worried yet. They say, you know, there's a dozen countries that remain to ratify this. Some of them, we don't know when it's going to happen. 
happen. It might be another couple of months. But it all depends on what the court's next step is. Should they decide to approve the injunction that the plaintiffs have sought, then we could be into much choppier legal waters. And then worst case scenario, the EU might have to go back to the drawing board and come up with a new legal construction for the fund, which of course will take a hell of a lot longer. There are those who regard this procedure, this deal as integration by stealth. What do you make of that? Yeah, there's this sort of curious alliance between, on the one hand, the sort of Eurosceptics who worry that this fund, which legally has been designed as a one-off, that it marks a giant step towards fiscal union or what in countries like Germany is called the transfer union, this sort of notion that more fiscally robust countries like Germany would find themselves permanently on the hook for what they see as the fiscally incontinent countries of Southern Europe. But on the other hand, you have integrationists who say, yes, that's exactly what this is, and that's a wonderful thing, and we want to make sure that this becomes a kind of permanent part of the EU's fiscal decision-making machinery. The jury is very much out on this and will be for, for quite some time. Olaf Scholz, Germany's finance minister, likes to suggest that next-generation EU could help bring about Europe's Hamiltonian moment. This is a reference to a decision by America's fledgling federal government in 1790 to assume the debts incurred by the states. Fans of the musical Hamilton by Lin-Manuel Miranda may remember that because of this line. If we assume the debts, the union gets a new line of credit, a financial diuretic, how do you not get it? I put that comparison to Paolo Gentiloni, the EU's economics commissioner, who is closely involved in the process. I heard several definitions. One, of course, is Olaf Scholz Hamiltonian, but I've heard of Rubiconian. What is, I think, key is... One, to recognize the unprecedented importance of the fact that we are issuing common debt for common purpose. Completely unthinkable uh, just one year and a half ago. Second, that from the legal and regulation point of view, this is an extraordinary one-off decision. But also, knowing how the process of the building of the European Union went in the last decades, we know that if a new tool works, it can be replied. But Tom, has the EU really crossed a financial Rubicon here? We heard from Mr Gentiloni there that if this works once, then it could happen again. And that's just a confirmation of the Eurosceptic's worst fears, isn't it? I think it absolutely has crossed a Rubicon. You had people back in the days of the euro crisis, 2010, 2012, you had people saying that the EU if it's, or the Eurozone, if it's ever going to survive, will have to become some sort of fiscal union. There will have to be some sort of common borrowing facility, whether you call it Eurobonds or something else. That idea never got anywhere, crucially in Germany, but also in some other northern European states. Now, the pandemic was enough to change minds sufficiently to enable a programme like this. If it is to become permanent, then they would need to be able to show that this had worked. If it's not a success, it will not be repeated. How are they actually going to measure whether this, the spending of this huge amount of money has actually worked or not? What are the metrics? The most obvious thing that you can look at is to what extent has this accelerated the recovery in countries that have been particularly hurt by the pandemic um, and also those countries that were struggling even before the pandemic. Another one, I think, will be the extent to which the investments that this fund will be supporting have been put to productive use. More than a third of the spending has to go on plans related to um, green investment, climate change. 20% have to go to digital schemes. If 
it could be conclusively demonstrated in a few years' time that the EU has become more resilient to climate change, that digitalization of government and other things has proceeded at pace, then I think you'll have a pretty good argument for how these funds have been able to be put to productive use. And here's Paolo Gentiloni again. The one I'm more optimistic is here, I think, this plan can contribute to give EU a global leadership on the green transition and to allow EU to catch up in some sectors of our digital competitiveness. More challenging is the goal of uh, managing divergence uh, within the euro area. Uh, One of the reasons that brought to this unprecedented decision to issue a common debt was the risk to have divergences among particularly euro area member states growing too much. This is the reason why the stronger beneficiaries of this common tool are uh, uh, countries in uh, Eastern Europe or Southern Europe. We will see. And just to bring us right back to the here and now then, Tom, what happens next? So, well, we've spoken about the court ruling in Germany. The big test now, aside from that, is that um, all of the member states are currently negotiating national recovery plans with the European Commission. And these have to fit many criteria, not only on green spending and digital spending, but um, governments are meant to make credible commitments to reforms, which could be anything from improving the efficiency of their public administration to something on their pension systems, you know, you name it, the sort of things that they've been squabbling with the European Commission about for years. Well, those plans have to be agreed by the end of April, then the Commission has to approve them, then other governments have to approve them. Meanwhile, other parliaments have to ratify this decision to allow the Commission to start borrowing. Most people don't seem too concerned about this. There may be some wrinkles along the way, and we'll see what the red robe judges at Germany's Constitutional Court have got in store for us. But most people seem to think that um, once we've got all of this stuff out of the way, then um, the Commission should be able to begin its borrowing probably sort of June July time and then soon after that the money can start flowing to the governments. That sounds like the usual very long EU to-do list. Exactly. Tom Nuttall, thanks very much. Thanks Patrick. For more analysis subscribe to The Economist. This week we've got a look at America's belated fintech revolution, lessons from Turkey's walk on the wild side of economics and a profile of the Chinese tech giant with ambitions to be the next Netflix. There's a special offer for listeners at economist.com slash podcast offer. And the link is in the notes for this episode. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Next. There's never been such high demand to put greenbacks to work for a green cause. According to Morningstar, a data tracking firm, in the fourth quarter of 2020, assets under management in funds focusing on environmental, social and governance issues leapt by nearly a third 
to almost $1.7 trillion. Advocates of green investing say it has two main benefits, that it benefits the planet and society, and that it provides better returns for investors. But sustainable investing now finds itself in the firing line, as a series of events calls both of its core ideas into question. The first was the firing of Emmanuel Faber, who was the boss of Danone, a big French food company. Guy Scriven is our climate risk correspondent. Mr Faber was a, a big champion of sustainability and stakeholder capitalism and kind of ESG issues. But ultimately, his investors decided that Danone hadn't performed well enough for him to stay in his job. That's a bit of a knock for those who argue that sustainable investing is inherently good for business. What else has happened? The second event relates more to the impact that sustainable investing has on, on the planet and on society. And that was an opinion piece published in USA Today, uh, written by Tarek Fancy, who is the uh, former uh, chief investment officer of sustainable investing at BlackRock. I caught up with Tarek and asked him to explain what he sees as the kind of core of the problem of sustainable investing. There's a gold rush into these vehicles and funds. The illusion that I find the most damaging is this idea that like, you don't need the government to fix the rules because the private sector has, has got this, right? Like you could argue, and I would argue that ESG tools and data are actually quite good because in some sense, getting a clearer picture of the company's footprint and you know their externalities is a very useful thing, but it's being used completely incorrectly. BlackRock is the world's biggest asset manager and also one of the real champions of sustainable investing. And it says it puts kind of climate risk right at the center of its investment strategy. He argues that the incentives are all wrong. The impetus inside the industry, I can tell you confidently, is it's not to be disingenuous at all, but it's mm -hmm. these are for-profit organizations. There's entire divisions focused on the next big thing in sales and marketing and this, that, and the other. And that machine works, frankly, the way you would expect it to, to do the least amount you can to change an existing approach or fund or vehicle enough to just call it green. The major problem, I would say, is actually there's no demonstrable impact for the vast majority of them. And BlackRock dispute these claims, and so it's created a bit of a row. What would it take for the approach to have the impact that it claims? Well, I put that to uh, Tarek Fancy. You would need to impact their financing costs by enough that it creates an incentive for them to curb the activity that they're doing. I honestly don't understand how that works with a fossil fuel company, right? I mean, first of all, if a bunch of good people sell it, I can, I can name you off the top of my head, 20 hedge funds, I know who buy it. It's based, I think, sometimes on the misperception of confusing boycotts with divestment. 10% of the market not buying your stock may have absolutely zero impact. And what I worry about is that it's distracting from the government rule changes that actually could curb the greenhouse gas emissions curve. So when I spoke to BlackRock about these criticisms, which are more to do with the sustainable investing industry than BlackRock itself, uh, they told me that they agreed with some of them. So the, they thought greenwashing was a kind of risk in the industry and, and, and that threatened the credibility of the industry. But they think that uh, sustainable investing does have a place and that it can deliver decent returns and can have an impact on the environment and society. So they, they disagreed with Tarek on those points. Obviously, Guy, a lot of investors remain convinced that 
ESG investing can work, both for them and for the environment. So what sort of initiatives are they trying to try and bring that about? Well, some investors argue that it's in fact better to hold the shares of polluting companies than to avoid them. One really big example of of this kind of engagement approach is the Climate Action 100 Plus, which is a big group of investors, so including really big asset managers like BlackRock uh, and also kind of asset owners like pension funds. They now have 575 members and the total kind of asset holdings of those members is, is over $50 trillion dollars. Okay, that's a lot of investors with a lot of money uh, and some very big companies involved. So what sort of impact is that having? Well, they've certainly had some successes. So in February, uh, Shell, a, a oil major, announced that it would target net zero emissions and it's hoping to have achieved this by 2050. Uh, there have been kind of similar pledges from BP and Total. But it's hard to kind of separate the impact of Climate Action 100 plus from changes that would have happened anyway. So how do you go about calculating which pledges are actually the product of investor pressure? Climate Action 100 Plus focus on 160 or so companies. You can use that as, as a sort of kind of natural experiment. So we put together a portfolio of 100 companies that are not engaged by Climate Action 100 Plus, but also have very big carbon footprints. And we looked at two metrics. One was climate risk disclosure and the other was target setting. And if you look at these two metrics, the actual impact that Climate Action 100 Plus has had looks reasonably modest. So about 30% of the firms that Climate Action 100 Plus target have signed up to the science-based target initiative compared to about 25% in our portfolio group. And about 40% of the firms that Climate Action 100 Plus target have signed up to the Task Force for Climate-Related Disclosures. And that 40% compares to about 30% in our control group. Moreover, the, the firms that are actually setting the kind of green goals tend to be the smaller polluters. And so it's, it's, it's a case of, of those with the smaller carbon footprints seem to be doing more. So if, as you seem to conclude, Guy, the effect of this initiative is fairly modest. Do Tarek Fancy and other sceptics about sustainable investing have a point? Advocates of Climate Action 100 Plus say that, you know, it's a long-term project and it will take more time to, to, to show kind of meaningful results. There may be some truth in that. One of the questions for the future is whether the companies that set targets are actually making changes to their businesses and, and moving towards them. I mean, perhaps a deeper issue which Tarek Fancy raised was maybe that some businesses are, th are thinking about climate risk in the wrong way. The problem is this investment strategy doesn't care about 10 or 20 years. And frankly, the other problem is that climate risks are not what people think they are, right? There's this weird thing where people sort of look at that and they say, oh, we're looking at climate risks in the financial system. I guess we're fighting climate change. And I try to explain to people, I said, listen, protecting an investment portfolio from the carnage of climate change is not the same thing as preventing the carnage of climate change. And from our number crunching, $50 trillion worth of kind of investor pressing doesn't really seem to result in very much change. So it, it doesn't look great for the uh, sustainable investing agenda. And on that slightly pessimistic note, Guy Scriven, 
thank you very much. Thanks, Patrick. I'll try and have uh, better news for you next time. Yes. <laughs> Finally, the food delivery company Deliveroo will float on the London Stock Exchange tomorrow, Wednesday, March the 31st. It will be one of the biggest and most anticipated listings in years. But on Monday, March the 29th, its expected valuation of up to £8.8 billion was revised down to £7.6 billion. The new price comes as several large investors, including Legal and General and Aviva, said that they would shun the IPO amid concerns over the rights of the self-employed riders on whom Deliveroo and other food delivery services rely. Our correspondent, Jonathan Nunn, took to two wheels to find out more about the economics of food delivery from the inside. I press go on the app and a virtual city spreads out before me. As I cycle around waiting to be summoned, I experience a sudden flashback to playing Pokemon on my Game Boy as a child. It was the summer of 2020 and I'd applied to be a part-time delivery rider in the middle of a global pandemic. COVID-19 has supercharged demand for food delivery. Deliveroo's company's prospectus shows its 2020 revenue up 54%, while gross margin was up from 24% to 30%. With commissions as high as 35%, signing up with the delivery service is a tough trade-off for restaurateurs. But despite the grim calculations, these delivery services have helped keep many restaurants afloat during lockdowns. And the parallel explosions in both delivery demand and unemployment have caused a number of riders to balloon. Deliveroo's casual workforce almost doubled over the past year. So spooky. I had no idea why anybody even lived here. Your destination is on the right. And it changes the city. Suddenly, the entire city, you always have somebody to talk to everywhere. As soon as I started uh, delivering, I really, really liked it because it's basically a real-life video game. Many riders rely on Deliveroo and its competitors for the bulk of their income. But for many others, it's a welcome supplement, something done in evenings and weekends or between multiple other gigs. Hi, my name is Gurpriya. I actually work in strategy for a large tech company. My name is Eric Berger and I'm a product designer. So I design apps and try to make them as user-friendly as possible. Gurpriya and Eric, who designs for The Economist, are part of an unexpected phenomenon within app delivery circles. People who deliver food as a hobby. It sounds strange, but it gives you like a guaranteed success experience. The moment you get a delivery, that already feels like a success, even though you did nothing. It's like a little kick and you're like, this is great. And then you cycle to the to the restaurant and then you found it. That's the next kick. That's like also exciting. Then you have to get the attention of somebody to give you the food bag and then you grab it. Then again, you find the place. Again, a little success. You give it to the customer. The customer is happy and then um, you're done. And then you see See how your earning like increases. Those earnings have become the subject of heated debate. Uber Eats and Deliveroo both claim to pay the minimum wage in Britain. In fact, they pay per delivery. Each drop usually earns a rider £3 to £3.50. A new analysis of 300 Deliveroo couriers' takings over the past year by the Bureau of Investigative Journalism finds that one in three made less than the minimum wage. Although the apps estimate how long it takes to reach a restaurant or customer, They don't factor in finding the customer or picking up the food, which takes up most of your time. Exactly how much you earn depends on your location, the time of day, the weather, and how skillfully you hack the system. And despite the rewards being small, many riders find that once they start, they don't want to stop. 
What's very common is that at 11 p.m. you're with other riders and people are like, I just couldn't stop. Like, I wanted to stop two hours ago, but I just couldn't. I couldn't. It was just, I got another one, another one. Okay, so this is the heaviest order I've ever delivered. I'm carrying like 10 Chinese food packs on my back and it is heavy. I would say it's almost a bit dangerous like almost how good it is because you spend longer than intended like let's say if you have another job where you would maybe earn more money and you can distribute your time across it and the, the other strange thing is that everybody is completely aware that the that it's too little money so you still continue even though you're thinking this is not enough this is ridiculous as eric kept riding the product designer in him quickly realized that this was no accident Subtle psychological cues and rewards help incentivize fleets of riders, basically turning bicycle delivery into a game of grand strategy. It's the little details that are really, really extremely well designed. So one of the most Im impressive details that probably nobody is aware of is that your fee for each delivery always changes a little bit. It's not much. It'll be like £3.57, £3.56, £3.52. And it doesn't sound like much, but it has a huge influence on how you react to the app because it's always a little surprise. Then there's surge pricing. Periods of high demand cause a hike in prices for customers and the promise of a boosting earnings for riders. I mean, in theory, it's like we have a lot of orders, we need more riders. But as soon as they get more riders, the likelihood of you making a lot of money off those surges reduces a lot. Okay, I was uh, actually about to cross the bridge and go back to South London to be closer to home. I want to finish soon. But uh, sucker that I am, <laughs> the app gave me an order and now I'm going uh, to pick it up. Also actually tried to send me all the way from Cannon Street up to Dalston for like four pounds or something. Uh, really annoying. The moment you stop, so even for a week or two, you suddenly start getting bombarded with emails. And it starts with like, hey, you haven't been on the road for a while. Is everything okay? Do you want to talk? And you're like, wow. And then it keeps going on. And then they're like, here are great times that you can ride and maximize your earnings or think about getting back on the road and look what you're missing out on. But after a while as riders, Eric and Gurpriya had to ask themselves, who was playing whom? On the one hand, you're hooked, but on the other hand, you always feel like they're trying to cheat you a little bit. Often you can get paid six pounds for delivering just a burger. And then you accept the order. And when you reach the restaurant, they'll suddenly just double your order. And it is actually very difficult to go and in reject the add-on order. Like for one order, if I get six pounds, and for an add-on, I'm only getting two pounds, I feel really played by the app. The genius of the model is that the faster you deliver meals for Deliveroo and Uber Eats, the more money they'll make too. You might think you're beating the app. In reality, you're competing with your fellow riders to nab the next delivery, though it can be hard to see them as rivals because you're each stuck in your own virtual world. Advocates of the gig economy model praise its flexibility, allowing the rider to log on and off at will and use income from delivery to work around more traditional jobs. I interviewed Will Shu, the founder of Deliveroo, and he told me about his own experience working part-time as a courier before starting the company. The job paid £6 an hour, cash in hand, and he saw undocumented couriers sleeping on restaurant floors. In Shu's eyes, Deliveroo legitimizes a shadow economy. It's also remarkably accessible. I had one rider and he said, you know what, today is really the worst day ever, but 
even if I only make five pounds today, he said, who else will give me five pounds? I can't find any other job. People who rely on uh, this work often are registered on more than one app. They are on multiple different platforms. They often switch between these platforms or they would pick up orders from one platform and then, you know, call their friend and ask them to deliver uh, the second delivery from the second platform. But Alex Marshall of the IWGB, a union representing gig workers, argues these advantages are still outweighed by how precarious the work is. One particular complaint he's seen during the pandemic is riders being suddenly laid off. As self-employed riders, they have little legal recourse to contest these decisions. He also argues that the practice of substitution, when riders loan their accounts to others, officially tolerated by Deliveroo, perpetuates the grey economy Will Shu observed in his early days, since the lenders often charge their own commission. One thing has stayed constant. These companies have all been losing money. Despite the surge in demand in 2020, Deliveroo still posted a four-year loss of £224 million. Deliveroo's IPO documentation also warns that it faces multiple legal inquiries, including in Britain, France, Spain and the Netherlands. Prominent investors turning their noses up could be grandstanding. There is still more than enough interested parties to make Deliveroo one of the biggest British listings in years. But if the company is forced to make costly concessions on labour rights, as Uber was in the UK in February, it could rock an already shaky business model. I've now hung up my jacket and logged out of the apps. But for the many riders for whom logging out is not an option, they'll be following Deliveroo's next moves especially closely. Our thanks to Jonathan Nunn, to Eric Berger and to Gopriya for sharing their experiences. If you'd like to hear more about why Deliveroo's listing in London tomorrow matters, tune in to The Intelligence, Wednesday, March 31st, on your podcast app. And if you want to read more about Jonathan's journey into the world of food delivery, you can find his essay online in our sister magazine, 1843. Thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Our producers are Amika Shortino-Nolan and Steve Hankey. The editor is Sandra Schmuley. I'm Patrick Lane. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.